So after the, uh, after the big freeze, how's your curb appeal in front of your house? Is it going good? You going good? How many of you have been, I've, I've been paying people to remove plants. Anyone? I did the first one, then I was like, forget it. Three hours later, I'm like, I'm paying somebody else. So like if you're getting ready to sell your house, you can go on HGTV and find 230 ways to make sure that your curb appeal looks good. When Renee and I first came to Corpus, uh, I didn't even have to look at the outside of the house. We would pull up in the realtor's car and I would just look at Renee's face. And I could tell right away, no, we don't need to see the closets. We don't need to get out of the car. Renee's face says, we're not gonna be interested in this one. From the outside of the house, she does not wanna go in. Anybody with me, amen? Yeah, you know right away, right? And it's interesting because curb appeal, I did a little research on this. You can actually increase the value of your house a great deal just if you have a well-landscaped, attractive curb appeal from the outside. Increases your home value anywhere from 13 to 20%. So if you're selling your house for 300K, which is kind of low now, and Corpus houses has gone up, right? Then uh, 13%, $39,000. I don't know. Would you pick up $39,000 if you found it on the street? Apparently you would not. I'm glad you all are so well off. I would, I would pick it up. Okay, anyhow. All right, so anyhow, curb appeal, curb appeal. But curb appeal is not the most important thing. And the scripture talks about this and it does it a little different way. This is a scripture that's 4,000 years old and this is a lot of fun. And you could memorize this verse. Here it is, this is what it talks about. Like a gold ring in a pig's snout is a beautiful woman who shows no discretion. Anyone want to memorize that one? Yeah. Yeah, the, the beautiful gold ring is what everybody wants, but where does the owner put it? The owner puts it on a pig, which is going to get what? Muddy, and, and so it's not good for the rest of us, sort of a waste. So the Bible is actually saying, watch out for curb appeal in your life. But it's talking about our exterior and how we look and how much we focus on that. Because from the curb, right, you can't tell if there's mold, from the curb, you can't tell if the foundation is bad or if there's radon or asbestos or if it's on an old Indian burial ground that you're going to be cursed forever if you buy the house. Hello? I remember one time I broke up with a girl. She was a Russian girl. She came to Southwest Texas, and I loved her. Her name was Mishka. Mishka. I would love Mishka because she had fantastic curb appeal. You know what I'm saying? And... I really, we, we had a good relationship, things were good. This is not in the notes, I'm just coming up with stuff. So things were going good, things were great, but then I found out some stuff on the interior that I didn't like. One thing, she smoked. I'm asthmatic, I don't do well around smoke. I don't like that. Put her breath mint in every time before you kiss. It gets awkward. So we break up. Six months go by. I'm lonely. I'm sad. I'm all alone. I'm not feeling any love so far. And I go to the grocery store. I'm in college, and I'm at the grocery store, and there she is, Mishka. And angels are singing, ah. And she walks up, and she's beautiful, and I'm like, oh, my God, why did I ever break up? Why? She's so beautiful. But then she gave me a hug, and I looked in her pocket. In her pocket, it said Marlboro, and I go, oh, yeah. I remember. See? You got to look at the interior, right? Because we want to look deeper because things that are only skin deep are things that you ultimately can't keep, right? Michael J. Fox was told when he was an actor, when he was young and cute, his actor teacher told him, you're cute now, but you won't be cute forever. What then? Hello? 
Have you looked in a mirror? You're getting older. Look around. <laughs> and today we're looking at... <laughs> some of you are like, look at you, pastor. <laughs> yeah. I feel you. I hear you. All right. Anyhow, based on a true story, you ever, you ever see this uh, based on a true story? When you're watching a movie, when you see based on a true story, whether you're watching, you know, uh, Better Off Dead, a classic like that, or Shawshank Redemption or The Matrix, if you see based on a true story, what does it do? It perks you up a little bit. You're like, hey, or if you see it at the end, because sometimes they put it at the end like Schindler's List or Seabiscuit, you're like, hey, this is real. This is legitimate. We got to pay attention because it's a true story. Are you with me, church? Yes. Amen. So sometimes when you watch a movie, it's like, this, this can't be true. It's so outrageous. It must be fiction. But we know sometimes that truth is what? It is indeed, sometimes it's what, church? Stranger than fiction. So we're going to look at today someone who was all about curb appeal. And he didn't care much about the interior of his house. And his name was Absalom. And this is his story. Anyone know the story of Absalom? There was like one person at the nine o'clock. I'm going to tell you, I am so looking forward to this sermon. This is going to be a lot of fun for me. I'm glad you're here. According to the Bible, he's the most beautiful person who ever lived. At least in his day, in his country. This is what the, the Bible actually says this. You can find this story in 2 Samuel. It says, this is what it says. In all of Israel, there was not a man so highly praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. The Bible actually says this about his curb appeal. From the top of his head. Now imagine, guys, your wife writing this on your Valentine's card. From the top of his head to the sole of his foot, there was no blemish in him. Can any of you relate? <laughs> I'm so glad you didn't raise your hand. <laughs> so Absalom was a fantastic-looking guy. He was beautiful. He was GQ top 10, most gorgeous person in the world, right? On People Magazine. Absalom was also the son of King David. And King David, of course, is one of the most famous kings. He wrote Psalm 23, wrote most of the Psalms that we read. King David was legit. And the text in, in, the, text in the Bible says Absalom was a beautiful man, stunning to look at. From the top of his head to the bottom of his foot. There we go. That's Renee. Renee likes Jason Momoa, so that we put that up there for Renee. This is my way to haze my wife on, on the screen. Anyhow, you couldn't find a thing wrong with him. Of course, if you could look at the inside as God sees, you would see that he was pretty, but he was also ugly at the same time. And God cares more about the inside than the outside. Amen, church? Yeah. Looks aren't everything. Don't be so impressed with stature. Men and women, we look at the outside, but God looks at the heart. Absalom had a beautiful face, but he was an empty head. He was the king's son. Now, in addition to being beautiful, in addition to being really good looking, this Bible actually says that he had amazing hair. This is what it says. Amazing hair. <laughs> So we had a little Fabio there. I was, I was like, I got, we got to have Fabio. That's an old school guy, right? Now, I'm a little sensitive to this because I'm definitely a hair guy, as you know. I like hair. It's, it's hard in Corpus Christi because it's like living in a blow dryer to keep your hair in place, right? It takes a lot of product. Ladies, are you with me? Yeah. So uh, he had amazing hair. Now, I'm not making this up. The Bible actually says that whenever he cut his hair, how many of you, like guys, if you go to the go to, you know, Supercuts, or you go to your salon, or your beauty salon, or whatever. How many of you say, after you cut it, I'd like you to weigh it? Anybody? 
No, you don't do that because they just sweep it up and vacuum it up. That's kind of weird to weigh your hair. But he weighed his hair. The Bible actually says it was so heavy for him, he would weigh it. And after he weighed it, the Bible actually tells us how much it weighed, 200 shekels by the royal standard. I'm not making this story up. That means it was two to three and a half pounds after he cut it. I mean, apparently he got tired of whipping it around all the time. And, you know, and so he would have to have his mane shorn and someone would weigh it. I'm picturing Fabio, Jason Momoa, Channing Tatum, all the people that Renee loves. Anyhow, Absalom hair is very, very beautiful. <clears throat> so, beautiful, great hair. What else do we know about Absalom? Well, there's this. Out of all of David's sons, he was highly favored to be the king, to be the next in line after King David died. You might say he was the heir apparent... Oh, come on, that's good. Come on, that's, that's, this is what I do all week, okay? <laughs> H-E-I-R, oh, forget it. Anyway, he was truly, <laughs> I've been waiting all week for that one. He was truly Prince Charming. And, you know, what happens with Prince Charming? What, what happens with Prince Charming? He lives, how does he live? He lives what? Happily ever after. Apparently, y'all didn't read any uh, Disney stories. Hello, church, hello? Have I lost you? Are you awake? Say amen if you're with me. All right, very good. But he doesn't live happily ever after, not with Absalom. Proverbs says this, charm is deceitful and beauty is fleeting. In other words, you ain't cute forever. But someone who fears God, and what that really means is you have a sense of awe, a sense of wonder that you love God, right? You, you get to hang on to that forever. If all you've got are looks, then what do you have when that goes? If all you have is you can work the room and you can light up the room because you have electric magnetism, which Absalom had in spades, then what do you do when, when your day in the sun comes and goes? What do you do when someone newer and hotter and fresher and raunchier than you comes along? What do you do then? Okay, now having had your five minutes of fame and you're not the it thing anymore, okay? That's why the Bible says, watch this. You can do better. You can go deeper. So in looking in this case, we want to look at what Absalom did. We want to look and we want to look at how we might avoid his mistakes and the tragic outcome. Because there are five lies that Absalom believed. And if we can identify and expose these lies, then that means we're on our way to living a better story ourselves. Amen? All right. So are you ready for the five lies? All right, number one, which Absalom believed, he believed, I am my looks. I am my looks. So what you see is what you get. And the truth is, this was all over his story. Absalom was vain. He was proud of how he looked. But sadly, there wasn't anything deeper than that. He was what you would call long on image and short on substance. If we were in Texas, we would say it this way, he was all hat and no cattle. Okay, he didn't have it where it actually counted. So he believed, I am my looks. Second lie Absalom believed is he had freedom to do whatever he want. I can, I can be free and I can just do whatever I feel like, whenever I feel like giving, and I can just give in to any impulse I want. And one example of this place, one time he was frustrated because his friend Joab, who we'll come back to in the story, his friend Joab was ghosting him wasn't returning his calls, wasn't answering his text. Like the text message said, delivered, I saw the bubbles, you were gonna respond. Hello, have you ever had this happen? I text him, why didn't he text back? I emailed him, I called him, I left him a voicemail. Have you ever had this happen? Say amen. Yeah, 
So Joab never shows up. Joab never comes. He thought he was friends. So Absalom gets so mad. He's like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go ahead and light his field on fire. So he went and burned down Joab's whole field. Okay? This is what he did. He, he unfollowed him on Instagram. Right? He went on Facebook and liked 50 of his photos, then unliked him. Ooh, that'll get you. You know, people that live on social media, right? Oh, yeah, I unfriended him and blocked him. Ooh. <laughs> I don't think I could go on if you block me. I'm just going to curl up on a ball and die. But he had no impulse control. For Absalom, to feel like doing it was the same thing as doing it. To have no self-control in small areas is to have no control in any area. Because ultimately, it's about principles, foundation. Third lie. You still awake? Amen? Third lie he believed, my friends, my friends, who are my friends? My friends are people who tell me what I want to hear. Whisper sweet, nothing's in my ear. Make sure you surround yourself with people who just stroke your ego and tell you what you want to hear. Those are your friends. And what did he want to hear? Anything that would stroke his ego. And one example of this is he notoriously disrespected and rejected the advice of Ahithophel. Ah! <gasps> You didn't jump up in your seat when I said that. Ahithetal. Try saying that word. I had been practicing that word all week. I've been in the shower. Ahithetal. Ahithetal. Renee's like, you are the weirdest dude I know. That's my wife. She loves me. Anyhow, Ahithetal was, what you have to understand about him, he was a very smart dude. Very bright. The Bible says he was one of the brightest people around. The Bible actually says that Getting advice from him was like getting advice from God himself. Wow. He's like the Yoda of the Old Testament, okay? Not the cute baby Yoda you see on Mandalorian. He's the older grown-up Yoda. Are you with me? Yes? That Star Wars example in the 9 o'clock was totally flat. Everybody's like, we don't watch Star Wars. So anyhow. All right. So, <clears throat> Antithophel says in 2 Samuel 16, verse 23, in those days, the advice of Ahithophel gave was like that who inquires of God. So, David and Absalom <coughs> regarded all the things that Yoda had to say, okay? He was like one of the best counselors. Now, every king had counselors, but you had the counselor of counselors, and Ahithophel was that. He was one of the best. His mind was like a guy who could play the computer who was playing chess with 50 people at a time. He was scary. This guy's ridiculous. Whatever he says to do, you want to do. So, so when it came down to one of the most important decisions of Absalom's life, Antithethal would give him the game-winning strategy because he wanted to overthrow his dad, David. Absalom was the heir apparent, but he couldn't wait to take over the throne. So he wanted to overthrow him. So he's going to go and listen to Antithethal's plan to overthrow David. But he's going to be confounded by Yusei the archite. You don't know who Yusei is? Well, this is getting thick, okay? Are you still with me? Yes? All right. Yusei the archite was on David's team. 
the guy that Absalom's trying to overthrow. Absalom was David's son trying to kill David. So they had a lot of family drama. This is Dr. Phil, Jerry Springer, all that put together, okay? They need some serious therapy. This is cray-cray stuff from the Old Testament. But basically, Absalom's trying to kill his dad and take over the kingdom. And Antithethal used to work for David, but he turned on David when Absalom staged his rebellion and revealed his intentions because Antithethal was also, cue the drum roll, Bathsheba's grandfather. If you remember this, David was the king. He had 10 wives. He sees Bathsheba bathing naked on the roof. Ladies, don't bathe naked outside. It's not good for us men. He calls her over. They have a little affair. They have a baby. He makes sure that her husband's killed in battle. And of course, the grandfather's like, I remember all this, and I'm going to get you back, David. Okay, are you with me? All right, so this is how it all works. I know it's a lot of things. So anyhow, when Absalom staged his rebellion, it was big in the press that Antithethal was on team Absalom. And you say the archite was going to go with David when David was on the run on Ouseville. But David told you say, he said, no, no, don't run with me. What I want you to do is you stay in the kingdom of Absalom and I'm going to pray that you can confound and, and not, not make Absalom listen to the advice of Antithethal. Okay. That's what's going to happen. So Yushay is thinking, well, no one's going to listen to me. They're going to listen to Antithethal. But David prays a prayer, and they come up with a plan. Antithethal comes up with a plan for Absalom to overthrow the king of, throne of David. And Yushay says, that's a great plan. No one's going to listen to my plan. But Yushay appeals to Absalom's ego. And he says, this is what we're going to do. This is how you're going to overthrow David. You're going to lead your men you're going to have your sword drawn like this. You're going to go across the river. There's no river, but he's just making it all up, right? And you're going to lead your men, and your long hair will actually scare the men of David. I'm not making this up. This is what he says. And, of course, Antithethal has a much better plan, but Absalom wants to listen to the one that does what? Strokes his ego. And so he says, you know, I liked your plan, Antithal, but you say is much better. And so the Academy Award goes to Yusei the Archite for the best BS battle plan. Okay. And if you don't like the word BS, you're probably in the wrong church. All right. So anyway, and so Absalom goes to Antithal and says, yours was good, but Yusei's is better because it's all about his ego. And he did not listen to Antithal, who promptly went home and killed himself. Okay. So bottom line is Absalom only wanted to hear what he wanted to hear. Are you still with me? Amen. Renee said, I would lose you. Where's Renee? Where is she? Renee, they are with me like giants right now. They're with, are you all with me? Yes? Yes. Anyhow, he believed a lie. He believed, my friends tell me what I want to hear. Lie number four. When I want to get something done, I need to take matters in my own hands. If I'm going to get from here to there, right, I need to look out for number one. So that means whoever's in my way, I'm going to crush and conquer. I don't care if your fingers are on the rungs of the ladder. I'm going to step on them on the way up. I'm going to use you and burn you and then forget you ever existed. It's dog eat dog. And Absalom was going to roar. He was going to rule. He was a marketing genius. Absalom had a flair for publicity. And he knew how to work the room. He was a consummate politician. And he hadn't done anything except for be famous and be royal. 
and that was enough to work to his advantage. There's a great little passage. I'll share with you an example of this. 2 Samuel 15. Here's what the Bible says. In the course of time, Absalom provided himself with a chariot and horses and 50 men to run ahead of him. He didn't have a post or anything he ran, but you knew he was coming because he assigned 50 men and chariots to go ahead of him wherever he went. So it looked like, hey, wow, like, like when a limo pulls up, somebody important is coming. Now, why did he do that? Just to look important, right? And then he would come behind the entourage, the 50 people in front of him, in a lowered Camelac Escalade. <laughs> come on, this is good. Camelac Escalade, come on. How many of you got an Escalade? Someone's got an Escalade in this room, right? Come on. They don't want to raise their head right now, but anyway. It made him feel like he's special. And in verse 2, he would get up early and stand by the roads leading to the city gate. And whenever anyone came with a complaint to plead before the king, so people would come to, like, go to King David and complain, but they couldn't get to see David. Who was there waiting? Absalom. And Absalom say, hey, what town are you from? And the people would say, well, one of the tribes of Israel. Then Absalom would say, man, look, your claims are valid. And they're great, but too bad there's no representative of King David here to hear you because, man, you seem right. And I bet if the king wasn't so busy, he would listen to you. And that's just not the case. So he's not listening to you, but I'm listening to you. I got your back, brother. And so verse 4, and Absalom would add, if only there were an appointed judge in the land, then everyone who has a complaint or case could come to me. And I would, you know, if I was the king, there would be justice. Have you ever heard a politician say, if I was the president, things would be different? That's what he's saying. He's really wormy about it, right? And verse 5, whenever anyone approached him to bow down before him, right? Because that was protocol. That was what you did when it was someone was royal. You would bow down. Absalom would reach out and, and with his hand go, no, 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 man. Brothers, we don't shake hands. Get over here. We'll do a bro hug. Let's do a chest bump. High five. I may be royal, but I'm one of you. Should we take you to the Hilton and get you a steak? No, no, bro, go over. Let's go to Whataburger. I'm just a common person. Come on, patty melt. That's all I need. And he was just very, very common. And he was trying to say, I'm blue collar. I'm like one of you. And what was Absalom doing? He was trying to be relatable with the people and make sure he wasn't like those stuffy elites like King David. And Absalom behaved in a way so the Israelites actually started to see him that way. And so the scripture says, so he stole the hearts. He stole their hearts of the men of Israel. He was trying to follow the one God appointed. In other words, he was a politician. Have you ever known a politician to lie? Come on, friends. <laughs> Some of you are like, oh. And now he's trying to redirect him. He warmed his way in. Of course, David and his team are doing the best they can to run the country right? But it doesn't matter. It's so easy to point the finger at whoever's in charge and say, you know, if I was in charge, I'd do it a lot better. And then people would show up and they would say to Absalom, well, I stole my neighbor's house. And Absalom would say, well, sounds like you had it, you know, that neighbor had it coming to him. It's a good thing you stole it. Well, King David said I shouldn't steal. Well, you know, King David doesn't know what he's talking about. And this is what he was like. And he would say, it'd be better if I was in charge. But let me just say this. I would rather be part of the solution than to want to be someone that just taking shots at those who are actually doing something. Amen? 
Okay? I love how Teddy Roosevelt said, it's not the critic that counts, right? They don't put statues up towards critics. It's not the critic that counts, but the person who's actually in the arena, marred by dust and sweat, making mistakes for sure, but on the way to contributing something to the world rather than to stand back and try and tear away something that someone else has built. I love that quote. So Absalom didn't care for any of these people. They were all pawns to him. They were all means to an end, something between him and having more power. Lie number five, glory and fame will bring me happiness. It's very clear Absalom had a need for fame. How do we define that he wanted more fame? What is more fame? More than I currently have. They asked Andrew Carnegie, he was the richest man in the world at one time, how much money is enough? You know what he said? Just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. How do we know when we have enough. He's already been born blue-blooded. He's royal family. He's unlimited power, can do anything he wants, and he only wants more. And here's why. It will never be enough for you. You're never going to have enough followers on Instagram. You're never going to have enough Facebook friends. You're never going to have enough likes. There's never going to be enough horsepower in your truck. There's never going to be a day when you go, you know what? It's just enough. How many of you have ever looked at your checkbook, right, and said to your spouse, huh, we have enough for the rest of our lives. If you do that, please remember the church. <laughs> 10%. He's always looking for more fame. There's nothing in this world that will ever cause you, nothing in this world that will ever cause you to put your hands up and go, that's it, I'm satisfied. It's like that interview with Tom Brady. Tom Brady, who I can't stand because he plays for the wrong team. I hate Tom Brady. I hate Tom. I'm a Steelers fan. Just understand it, okay? I hate Tom Brady. But Tom Brady had a great quote. Which Super Bowl ring is your favorite, Tom? They asked him. You know what Tom said? That obnoxious, talented quarterback, the next one. <laughs> it's not funny, Donald. Not funny. It'll never be enough. Not for any of us. Because here's why. Because the human engine, right, God made each of you, it doesn't run on fame and money and power and sex and drugs and getting high and getting paid. It's only meant to run on God. That's the only fuel. So the thirst in our hearts can't be satisfied with water that's found on this planet. It can only be satisfied with Living water, you know, agua de vida. Come on, I had a little Spanish in here. Come on. And you're like, well, I don't know. You're really stretched to this, Pastor, because you exaggerate every week, and you're exaggerating this story. I know you, Pastor John. Well, really, am I? I'm going to show you I'm not. Second Samuel, verse 18. During his lifetime, this is what the Bible says, Absalom had taken a pillar and erected it in the king's valley as a monument to himself. For he thought, since I don't have a son to carry on the memory of my name, he named a pillar after himself. Now, guys, try that today. Go home and tell your wife, you know, what are you going to do this week? Well, I'm thinking about erecting a pillar. Oh, yeah, for what? Honoring who? Oh, me. Where are you going to put it? The front yard. Yeah, big pillar. Pastor John. Boom. I don't think the HOA and the crossing of the king's going to allow it, but, you know, I'm going to go for it. What? This is, a, this is a great pillar. What are you going to name it? Me. Because it's the thing I love the most. What do you love the most? Me. He named the pillar after himself, and it's called Absalom's Monument to this day. 
His only desire is to be remembered, to be important, because that's where his identity is rooted and anchored. He could not see farther than himself, for he was his own God. It's been said over and over again, and it's so, so true. You can't break any of the commandments, any of the Ten Commandments, without breaking the first one. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And the reason you would lie or murder or commit adultery or any other sins you commit is because you've already broken the first one. And you're putting something else in the place of God. And for Absalom, it's picture him. And it's a chilling scene. Picture him with all that he had. It's not enough. And now he makes a monument. Why? Because he had a Lord before God and it was him. Those are five lies. Are you still awake? Say amen. So how did it work out for Prince Charming? Let's just skip to the end. It didn't go well. Did Prince Charming live a charmed life? It ended badly for Absalom. Because he listened to the plan that you say came up with that was all about his ego, Absalom decides he's going to lead all of his men into battle. So he's out front because he's picturing his long locks and his sword drawn and crossing the river on his mule. But this is what happens. The Bible says, now Absalom happened to meet David's men. He was riding his mule. They're going into battle. And the mule went under the thick branches of a large oak tree. Absalom's head got caught in the tree. He was left hanging in midair while the mule he was riding kept going. And at that moment, he wished he was bald. Because he was literally caught up with his amazing hair in the tree. Not a great look, it's sort of sad and pathetic because he's dangling by a tree. One of the men of Joab, oh, you remember Joab, you remember Absalom burned down his field. One of the men goes back to Joab, who's leading David's troops. He says, it's the darnest thing. I was just right, and we just saw Absalom hanging up in a tree. <laughs> it's just amazing. And Joab's like, really? Give me a couple javelins. And here's what the Bible says. Joab took three javelins in his hands and plunged them into Absalom's heart while Absalom was still alive in the oak tree. Now you picture this. And then 10 of Joab's armor bearers surrounded Absalom, struck him, and killed him in case the three javelins in his heart didn't kill him. That's a little unnecessary, I mean, right? Come on. I mean, the three javelins were probably enough. Amen? So then, verse 16, then they took Absalom down, I guess they cut his hair, I don't know, threw him into a big pit in the forest and piled up a large heap of rocks over him. This is a sad ending for a charismatic, gifted, good-looking individual born of the royal family with a silver spoon in his mouth. He had everything going for him, but in the end, it all turned out against him. And what was the greatest symbol of his pride, this beautiful hair became the ridiculous source of his downfall. But didn't Jesus put it that way, right? Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. So sermon in a sentence, whatever you get caught up with, you'll get caught up in. Mm -hmm. When we don't do what God's calling us to do, we'll end up invariably caught up doing something, focused on something, preoccupied with something. And if it's not what God wants us to do, what's going to happen is like Absalom dangling from the oak tree. We'll get caught up in what we get caught up with. So what do we need to do to avoid this outcome? Because it's really easy to throw shade on Absalom, right? But the more sinister reality is, is that these lies could spring up in our own hearts, right? And we always combat lies with the truth, with the true story, because Jesus said the truth will set you free. 
from the lies that we sometimes believe in our culture. So, are you ready? Amen? All right, real quickly here, let's go back through the list. We said, I am my looks. No, I am not my looks. And we're going to realize that I am more than that. I'm not just a body with a soul. No, no, no. You do not have a soul. You are a soul. You have a body. And it's an earthly tent. And it wears out and goes from dust to dust. And one day we'll put you in a box, put you in the ground, we'll have potato salad and talk about you. I know this is what I do. I did it twice last week. When's a potato salad? So you're not just your looks. Turn to your neighbor and say, you are more than your amazing curb appeal. Go ahead and say it. Go ahead. <laughs> All right. I didn't say disgust it. Just, just talk about it. There's more to the person you're looking at than you can see. Last year, Americans spent $18 billion on cosmetic surgery. $18 billion. How much did we spend on the inside? How much? So I'm not going to just focus on what is the outside. My looks matter. I'm not saying your body, your body's a temple. It matters, right? You don't want to, you know, you, you got to pay attention, right? You, but you're more than your looks. You're more than your appearance. I'm more than my clout or my social media status. I have depth inside. And I'm not going to just focus on what I can see. Because the greatest realities in life are unseen. The greatest realities in life are love. I can't see it, but it's love. The greatest realities in life are friendship. The greatest realities is family. So I'm not going to look at what can't be seen because Corinthians actually says what can be seen is temporary, but what can't be seen is eternal. So I'm going to spend some time focusing on the eternal. I'm not going to just look at the curb appeal. I'm going to spend some time looking at the interior of the house. Hello? And that's the point of this series. So I'm going to look at myself and everyone I meet and see them as God sees them as a child of God, as a soul. I want to see the angel on the inside. Okay? Number two, we saw a lie that the freedom is doing whatever we want to do. That's false. Freedom is doing what God wants regardless of how it feels to me in the moment. So I have an impulse. I have a feeling. I want to light a field on fire. I want to get back at them. Why didn't they text me? Why didn't they invite me? Why didn't I get to go to the party? I see everyone else on social media at the party, and I wasn't invited. And now I'm going to unfriend them all. Oh, and I want to react with anxiety. I want to lash out because I didn't get my way. But I could choose to say, you know what, God? Okay, it's your will, not my will that matters. I'm going to do what God says. Proverbs says this, someone who has no control over their spirit is like a city that's broken down and has no walls. And you don't want to be part of a city that has no walls, right? Because anyone can come in and take whatever they want. This is what's going on the debate over our border right now. Should we have a border? Should we have a wall? Should we not have a wall? And I'm not trying to get involved in that. But you don't want to live in the ancient world in a city without walls because people could come in and take and steal and rob and do whatever they want with your stuff. In other words, if you don't make boundaries for your life, other people will. Right? Other people will. 
I had a lady call me one time on my day off. It's Friday. I, she wanted to talk. I need to meet with you right now today. I said, what's wrong? Is it a crisis? Someone die? Are you, are you sick? What's going on? No, no, no. And it was just some nonsensical matter that could wait till next week. I said, this sounds like I can wait till Monday. Oh, what? It's my day off, ma'am. What? And she's saying, you have boundaries? You have a day off? Yeah, it's my only day to mow the lawn. Yeah, I'm going to take the day off. We can meet Monday. Well, pastor, the devil doesn't take a day off. <laughs> I think you are the devil. <laughs> and so I said to her, I said, well, if I don't take a day off, I will be the devil. So I'm sorry. I'll meet with you Monday. What am I doing? I'm making a boundary for my life. I'm not letting her define the boundary. Okay. But sometimes we live like that with no walls protecting us, no control over ourselves or our family. So someone provokes us or someone tempts us or someone irritates us and we lash out or we sin or we compromise. Why? Because we don't have self-control. We don't have any boundaries. And anybody that brings any stimulus into our world, they become our boss. Oh, they make you mad. No, you know who makes you mad? You make you mad. Well, they get your goat. Well, it's their fault. They triggered me. They got my goat. Well, if they keep getting your goat, why don't you tie up your goat somewhere else? Hello? Well, they pushed my buttons. Well, put a panel and a padlock and a lock over your buttons. You don't have to walk around going, here's where you press to really irritate me. Go ahead. What I'm saying is you got to control your spirit. So this is the way I look at it. My spirit, my responsibility. I can't control you, but I can control how I react to you. Third lie, friends are people who tell me what I need to hear. No, 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 no. Oscar Wilde said it best. A true friend is one who stabs you in the front. One time I preached half a sermon with my fly open. No one in the congregation said anything about it. I mean, the white shirt was hanging out everything. My friend, who's in the back row, is like, the whole tournament, I'm like, what is wrong with him? She did for good as medicine? What's he doing? And he kept going. <laughs> and finally, I looked down, and like a doofus, I'm like, oh, my God, nobody told me. The whole congregation, you know, that's all they thought about the whole sermon. His fly's down. You think he's going to recognize it? I don't know. So I had to turn around and face across, pretend I was praying, and zip up my fly. And then I had to shame the whole church for not telling me. Come on. A true friend tells you when you got broccoli in your teeth. Dude, you're going to need a tissue. Come on. You need to surround yourself with people who are willing to tell you the truth, to protect you from you. Absalom's biggest problem was Absalom. My biggest problem is me. Your biggest problem is you. The common denominator in all my life and all my problems is me. David knew this. That's why David, in the day that Absalom came against him, David usually led his men in battle. He usually led his men in battle. But what he did in this story was David got out, got his armor, and he's like, okay, guys, I'll lead you into battle. I'll be the first one to meet Absalom because Absalom's coming, you know, he's coming down. But what did the men say? The men say, no, David, David, listen, you usually lead us in battle, but this one's personal. This is your son. So we want you to be in the back. We want you alive at the end of the battle. So, so you, you, you go in the back. We'll go in the front. And so what happened? Absalom was in the front and David's in the back. So why did David survive and live? Because he listened to people who were his friends, right? He responded to authority, right? 
And even in the most difficult day when David really blew it with Bathsheba, the prophet Nathan came to him and told him a really hard thing. And, and David yielded to that voice, to that friend who said, you really messed up and you need to repent. And he didn't do it perfectly and none of us do. But we should build a life where people can come to us and tell us, hey, here's an area that's holding you back. And we should welcome that. We should want that. Hey, brother, your fly's down. Easier said than done, but some of the best growth opportunities I've had in my life come from difficult conversations in my faith journey in which I've yielded to people who see things in me I can't see because I'm blind and help me understand areas that are holding me back. Hello? Right? And we should crave that. We should want that. Fourth lie, Absalom believed. I need to take matters in my own hands. Here's the truth. I need to trust matters into God's hands right? Leave the outcome up to him. My obedience is what I'm going to focus on. The outcome is always God's oversight. I'm going to trust God. If I perish, I perish. But I'm going to do the greater good. This is Esther, Queen Esther. Look at her story. If I perish, I perish. I'm going to do what I do. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, bow down to this king. No, we're not going to do it. We're going to throw him in the furnace. Well, God will save us, but if not, we're still not bowing down. It's, uh, the outcome's up to God. Throw us in the furnace. And what happens? They end up being exalted. They end up being promoted. Those who say, look, it's a dog-eat-dog world out there. The whole thing about good guys finish last, right? But here's a better one for you. God's people finish first in the final analysis. You'll never regret or have a long-term regret honoring God in a moment, even if it costs you in the short term. In the long term, in the final analysis, if you can stand before God and say, you know what, God, I did what I thought you wanted me to do, then that's all you can do. So, another truth, glory and fame will not bring you happiness. God's glory will, though. It's seeking God's glory, not trying to get your own glory that brings you what you want. I remember I, I took a church that I shouldn't have took. I took a church that I did fine at, I was successful at, but the reason I took it was because I could preach to 1,500 people a week. Yeah, I've arrived. Pastor John. Because you know what the number one question us pastors ask? How big's your church? How many people come to your church? And what's that about? It's about our ego, our glory. And I don't even like sharing this with you because now I feel very naked, which is not comfortable for me, nor you, <laughs> for sure. <laughs> You're like, ah! <laughs> Anyhow, just my thoughts. Anyhow, don't seek your glory. But you know what? It didn't, I, and I, I had that church. I had the big church. I had the big staff. I had all those things, but I wasn't happy. Because it didn't fill me up. Because I was trying to be filled up with satisfaction from a job. And it, it doesn't fill you up. Scripture says, you know, sometimes stuff like that is like honey. Have you ever eaten too much of something because you love the way it tastes, but then you got sick? Yeah. And Scripture says it's not good to eat too much honey. So to seek one's own glories and not actual glory, it makes you sick. Because it doesn't fill you up. And eventually your soul gets sick. And you fill up your, you try to fill up your heart with, with, with honey. And what's the honey in this world? It's like money and sex and, and addictions and power and fame and job satisfaction. And you're just not full and you get sick. In Absalom, we have an example of what God wants us to do. Spot the lies, combat them with truth. And what will we have if we do that? If we combat <laughs> these lies with truth, We'll make sure that our life and our decisions and everything is based on a true story because the truth will set you free. So I'll close with this. 
In 2010, this is a true story, 2010, there was a woman who was 23 years old and who met her mom and dad for the first time. It was at that point in 2010 that she realized everything about her life and everything she's not she knew about her life was a lie and it was not true. She grew up in Bridgeport, Connecticut in a nice community. And she was told her name was Nadra Nance. And we have a picture of her there on the screen. Beautiful girl. And she was told that your parents are the ones that you know, you've known for 23 years in Bridgeport, Connecticut. But she did something. She did that Ancestry.com. You ever did that? She wanted to find out, who are my ancestors? I'm going to have a kid of my own. And she realized when she looked at the DNA test that, wait a minute, because her mom and dad had done the DNA test, and her mom and dad were not in Bridgeport, Connecticut, but according to Ancestry.com, actually lived in Harlem, New York City. What? And she had an upheaval. I mean, she had suspicions. Like when she was a teenager and she needed her birth certificate for something and she went to her mom and said, I need my birth certificate. And her mom was like, oh, I can't find it. I can't find it. And it took a long time. And finally she found her birth certificate, but it wasn't really right. And then she went to the hospital and she needed her social security card and her mom couldn't find her social security card. And finally she got a social security card from her mom, but the hospital said, this is a fake. It's not real. And so she went back to her parents in Bridgeport, Connecticut. She said, what's the deal? Why is my birth certificate fake? Why is my social security card fake? Why does my Ancestry.com say you're not my real parents? And her mom said, well, look, honey, um, here's the deal. You're adopted. Your real mom was a drug addict, and she didn't want you. So I took you in. But there was no paperwork. It was just an act of mercy for someone in need struggling. So I took you in, and here's what happened. But it didn't sit right with her. She said, well, why did you wait to tell me this so long, Mom? I'm having a daughter of my own now. So she goes on Google. And so Ned Renance, supposedly that's her name, goes on Google. And she ended up ending, landing on a series of websites. And she ended up on the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. And she started looking up images of those who reported missing from the same year she was born, 1987. And she couldn't believe that she found from her mom and dad, her real mom and dad in Harlem, New York, had posted a picture of her as an infant, as a missing child. And she saw, wait a minute, that's, that's me. Second month, third month, fourth, that's me. Wait a minute. <laughs> and there she was. Now this mom and dad in Harlem, New York, had their baby, had Ned Renance for 19 days. And 19 days into this little girl's life, she began to run a fever of 104. And they took her to the hospital, and she was hospitalized and being treated. And then someone posing as a nurse came in and stole her and took her from the hospital. And for 23 years, the real parents in Harlem, New York, held out hope against hope that someday their little girl would come home. And she realized that she was living a lie and that her name wasn't Nader Nance. It was actually Carlina White. And her mom and dad were those liars in Connecticut. And her real parents were in Harlem, New York. She literally solved her own kidnapping case. 
And those people in Bridgeport, Connecticut were liars, and they had spoken lies over her her whole life. And only when she was based on the truth could she move into her future with the right heart. And that's exactly what God wants us to see. Because the father of lies will tell you things like this, you're not a child of God. I've had pastors say to me, you shouldn't tell people they're a child of God until they're Christian. Nonsense. I tell it to the chapel time, all the kids in chapel time, I have them put their hands on their heads and I say, you are a child of God. Do that with me. You're a child of God. No matter who you are, no matter what you look like, you're a child of God. God made you. God created you. But the father of lies wants to say, hey, you're not a child of God. God will strike you down. The walls will collapse if you come to church. And some of you are here for a baptism. You've never been in our church. You're like, is every sermon this long? (laughs) Yes, they are. But some of you are like, oh my gosh, the walls aren't coming down. That's a lie. The enemy is a thief and a murderer and a liar from the beginning. And Satan's called the father of lies. And he's lied over our lives and told us half-truths and mixed up things. So we believe that we are what we are on the outside. And we believe that glory and fame will fill us up. And we believe and seek all these things. And we eat too much of this honey and we end up sick. The enemy says to us, God's not your father. You're not a child of God. And so many people believe that. That's a lie. Then we believe other lies, just like Absalom believed. So God sent Jesus Christ to to die on the cross for us because he loved us so that the truth would set us free and we'd have a seat at the family and to know our true parents would put our arms around us and that's God and to have every hurt inside of us really healed. It's a true story. You are a child of God. You are a soul. You are such more, so much more than your curb appeal. And when you look into that, I really learned this from an 85-year-old woman named Emily Ott. And I buried her son, 53 years old. And he drank himself into the grave. And it was one of the saddest funerals I ever did. And I was at Emily's living room after the funeral. Everyone had gone home. And she takes out a photo album. And I'm looking at pictures with her and her husband. And she's 23 years old, and she's hot. And I look at her, and I'm like, wow. I know what Wilford, Wilford was her husband. I know why Wilford married you. She's like, oh, yeah, I was a good-looking lady, wasn't I? And she's 85. And then we're sitting right in front of a mirror, and she looks up in a mirror. And she looks down at the picture, and she looks up in the mirror again. You ever done that? Oh, my gosh, I don't like looking at pictures from 10 years ago. That's why on eHarmony, everyone puts a picture from 10 years ago. She looked up in the mirror and looked up, down, and she goes, Pastor John, isn't age a, it starts with a B. And I went, yeah, because we get older. But Emily was a beautiful soul, and there was so much more to her than when she was 23. And there's so much more to you than the outside. There's so much more to you that, that we can't see, but God sees it. And you have to see it too. You are a child of God. Know that. Let's pray. God of grace, we give thanks for this time to come together and to learn from Absalom and what we can learn. God, help us to believe the truth, that we are your children, that you've created us, that you've made us, that you care about us, that you love us. Let's not believe the father of lies, and let's live in the truth that will set us free. We give thanks for Jesus who came to set us free and taught us as we say now together, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as in heaven. Give us this day our day of bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from evil, for thine is kingdom, 
the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us at Grace Presbyterian Church. We hope and we trust that this message was a blessing and gave you much encouragement as you face today. At Grace Presbyterian Church, we are a church family that welcomes everyone who welcomes everyone. And we would love to welcome you. So please join us either online or in person. You'll find a community that loves God and loves each other. And we are blessed by other people joining us. So please come and join us at Grace Presbyterian Church.